in the Western notions of evil, right, it, especially that the things of evil as this um, non-material that, that's, that's harbored within some irredeemable bad being like the devil, that it's at war with God, right? It, the notion of evil is uh, framed by this larger apocalyptic cosmological story of a dualism of good versus evil, where you have these poles that are just going to complete opposite and one is going to completely win out of the other. Uh, and we find ourselves in this cosmological battle uh, of apocalyptic proportions. In indigenous traditions, right, um, it's not that like there are not bad things, but there, there's a stronger emphasis that there are not irredeemably bad things. There are not inherently bad things, that everything has a power, everything has uh, an agenda that has to be respected and that you can live in right relationship with. And so things get out of hand when respect isn't given, when things are taken and there's not this reciprocity of things given back in some way it really lines up with the family experiences we have, right? Like my daughter is not irredeemably good or bad and things are in flow with us when she's properly respecting me when I tell her it's time to go to bed and when I am also providing food for her, right? There, the, the, we, the, there's a harmony at household that I can tell multiple stories about that reflects, well, this is life at, is, this is what life looks like at its best and it's good, right? It's a really compelling image. And this also invites notions of beauty and of an art to navigating these relationships in a good way that is not always perfect and doesn't have to be perfect, but there are pathways and rituals and ceremonies in place by which then we can restore balance. Love of life. Spirit unbound It is the truest form of love that I have found Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with a new episode. And this is a very unique uh, look than one we've ever taken before, and I'm very, very excited to have this guest on. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, a couple things. Um so this will be a part one of a two-parter, and then we will have a two-parter to end this season. Uh, not the end of this year, though. So uh, going to take a month or so off. Um, you know, obviously, uh, got to start stockpiling new episodes. So I've already got some recorded and some vision for how the fall into winter is going to look. I'm very excited. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to tap into some other religions, some other uh, religious um practices and holidays and, and what have you. So very, very excited to to bring that forward and to uh, share that with you all. Uh, but a uh, couple months off in between now and then, uh, but few episodes uh, first before before I take a slight break, but not really a break. Break for you guys, not really a break for me, but that's okay. Uh, but getting those episodes ready to go. Um, this week, though, before uh, we get to the end of the season, got this week, next week, and then the two weeks following. And then, uh, like I said, I'll take a short break. Um, before we get to this week's guest, though, 
www.thedeconstructionist.com is the main hub for all things uh, relating to this podcast. So you can link to our social media on there. Uh, You can send us an email. You can read blog posts on there. Got quite a few new ones uh, within the last six months or so. Um, You can visit our web store. We've got some cool t-shirts and pint glasses and coffee mugs on there if you'd like one. And then also you can link to our Patreon. So if you'd like to support the podcast and the costs associated with it, uh, you can do so through there and pick one of the many uh, different packages on there. Uh, You can also listen to our entire back catalog of episodes. You can stream them directly from the website. So if you're a technology challenge like my father, you can just click the play button on the front of the website. Very nice. Uh, this week's guest brings a different slant to uh, you know the the views of uh, of Christianity and interpretation of the Bible. Uh, Dr. Christopher Hakletube, uh, he's part of the Choctaw tribe. He teaches courses on the intersection of race, gender, and sexuality in the Christian tradition, the New Testament, Roman religion, Native American spiritualities, world religions, and religion and American politics. He also co-leads interdisciplinary off-campus courses that explore the theme of pilgrimage along El Camino de Santiago in northern Spain, which you guys hopefully remember from our series on the Camino with Dr. Alexander Shia uh, some, some years ago now. Um, the topics of ancient philosophy, religion, politics, and archaeology in Greece and Turkey. And he also covers history, art, and culture of North America, indigenous tribes uh, with art history. His book, Civilized Piety, the Rhetoric of Pietas in the Pastoral Epistles in the Roman Empire, uh, published by Baylor Press in 2017, brings together his interests research interests in early Christianity, Greco-Roman archaeology, ancient philosophy, and critical theory. Hakalatube has also written on Native American interpretations of the Bible, which we talk a lot about on this episode, and the concept of docetism in early Christian studies. He continues to research and write on the pastoral epistles and Native American interpretations of the Bible. Um, so check it out. I've got more information about him and some of the different things he's involved in in the show notes. But Chris was just an awesome interview, uh, just a really, really uh, kind guy with uh, a lot of interesting perspectives. Uh, we talk a lot about Native American spirituality, which I'll be honest, personally, uh, didn't know a ton about, but was interested uh, in learning a little more. Um, and so even more Uh, Obviously, we can't cover everything because there were tons and tons of different Native American tribes within North America, um, you know, uh, within um, uh, the U.S. and uh, obviously Canada as well, um, as well as as Mexico. Uh, I think I covered it all, right? All North America, yes. Um, And so couldn't possibly cover them all because obviously every tribe, um, you know, had a different you know, level of spirituality and a different type of spirituality and different beliefs. Um, but we, you know, we're able to cover some in, in some broad strokes, but I'll provide more resources in the show notes if you want to dive a little bit deeper. So a lot of fun though. Uh, with that, I think I mentioned, yes, uh, this is part one of two, and then we will finish off the season with another very exciting guest that I had a ton of fun with. Uh, who will be coming back for a future series. Uh, but more to come on that a little bit later. If you're a Patreon subscriber, though, uh, you'll get the episode early, and so you'll be able to listen to it in its full, uncut, unedited form uh, on the Patreon. So I released those about a week early before part one comes out of all episodes, so you'll have a chance to listen to that early in its full form. Um, I think that's it. Yes. Well, welcome back. Thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate all of you who take the time to... Uh, interact on social media, who send emails, um, you know, uh, 
DMs through 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 the different social media accounts, stuff like that. Uh, love to hear from you guys. So uh, appreciate all the the support, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this. So without further ado, I bring you Doctor Chris Freaking Hakla Tube. This water I am treading is now my home. So never take what you have for granted. All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited this week to have on my guest uh, Chris Hakla Tubby. Did I do it? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes, that's it. <laughs> we were just talking about I, I, I'm, I'm awful with pronunciation, and so um, I was trying my best not to completely butcher your last name. But thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really excited. We've never uh, specifically talked about Native American spirituality. So before we get into it, because I'm very excited, uh, tell people a little bit about your background and uh, what you do for a living. Yeah. So my name, again, is uh, Chris Hoklo-Tubby. I am a member of the Chata Nation, uh, Zooming in right now. We're actually uh, recording in from uh, Iowa, which was the ancestral land of the Bahoki, or the Iowa people, along with the Lakota Sioux and the Meskwaki Nation, and a number of other tribes uh, have have called this land home. Uh, I'm originally from Southern California. Uh, my grandfather made it out from Oklahoma, um, around uh, southeast uh, region of Oklahoma, where the Chata have their uh, well, their their new land. Uh, we were originally our people was, were originally from Mississippi, and uh, you know I, I wasn't raised in uh, an indigenous community, but over the last few years have found myself living and working uh, and and befriending um, a number of indigenous communities, primarily through my role with Nate's an indigenous learning community. I am the director of graduate studies and Nate's is, uh, and I'm proud to say the first accredited uh, indigenous design developed and delivered Christian seminary. Uh, It has a number of uh, founders who are kind of the who's who's of uh, people who have been thinking about the intersection of uh, indigenous spirituality and Christianity, including uh, Uncle Terry LeBlanc and Ray Aldred and Randy Woodley, Casey Church, Richard Twiss, um, and our current director, Sherry Russell, Cheryl uh, Bear, uh, and uh, uh, many, many, many others, uh, Wendy Peterson. Uh, so on, on that note, uh, I, I wanted to identify the the relationships and communities that have formed me and that I'm continuing to learn from in this pathway. Uh, I identify as someone who was raised in the evangelical conservative culture. And in in some ways, those evangelical elements are still within me. Uh, You know, I would otherwise say I'm a progressive Christian. But in a process of walking down a journey to think about what it means to revitalize indigenous practices and philosophies and ways of looking um, in my own life. And so, you know, there are a number of other people who are doing this. Uh, uh, Caitlin Curtis, you know, I will shout out to her work right now, who uh, wrote Native and has another book that just came out. Uh, uh, thinking about daily acts of resistance as an indigenous woman um, and many others. And so uh, I will note that the indigenous experience is multifaceted. Uh, We could talk about the urban indigenous experience to those who live on reservations. And, you know, um, I I say all this and thank you for giving me time to say all this because um, 
I note that I come from a very particular perspective and uh, one that I think I hope to be a bridge builder to your audience because that, that your audience seems to be my background as well. But as I'm journeying along and learning from so many people who have walked this path and who have been raised in indigenous communities and have something to say uh, uh, to uh, about indigenous spirituality um, uh, uh and also have critique Christian perspectives from from these positions of Christ, uh, of indigenous spirituality. You know, I, I hope to share some stories of what I've been learning along this way. Uh, and my final note I should do is what has also been taking me along this journey is I am currently writing a book that is uh, funded by the Louisville Institute and is under contract with InterVarsity Press, uh, tentatively titled. Uh, reading the Bible on Turtle Island, Indigenous Interpretations of the Bible from an, in North America. And I'm co-writing this with my Cree brother, Danny Zacharias, who's an, also a an, uh, Native First Nations New Testament scholar. Uh, so both uh, him and I are unicorns in the field of biblical studies. There's not very many members who have PhDs in biblical studies who are also members of indigenous tribes. So uh, uh, with this funding, I uh, and he have been traveling around Canada and the United States, meeting with indigenous elders and leaders and, and thinking about uh, both indigenous interpretations of the Bible, but also broad conversations of indigenous spirituality and indigenous worldviews. Yeah, I think I think that's the most fascinating uh, piece of it all is I, I had no idea there was this sort of subset of, of study uh, w- within, um, you know, Native American populations. And it, it's curious to me as, as someone with a background in history, you know, I, obviously, you know, I think we have to, to be, uh, to be honest and say that, uh, the, uh, sort of European conquest of specifically North America was, was oftentimes brutal and, um, you know, resulted in a lot of death and, 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 uh, Native Americans being pushed off of their land and, and kind of shoved into, uh, in, in some cases, these undesirable, pieces of, of, of land out West. And so it was kind of interesting to me from a historical perspective that, that these, uh, kind of white, uh, Europeans who are predominantly Christian and are, are doing these horrific things to the native peoples that anybody from the native populations would be at all interested in Christianity. So, uh, talk about how those two kind of came, uh, head to head, uh, throughout history. You know, you've put your finger on a central tension of the work I'm doing, the work that Nate's has been doing, and these are certainly stories that we want our students to be very familiar with. Uh, you know, the Bible didn't, indigenous people did not have the greatest introduction to the Bible in North America, right? First, you have the conquistadors coming through looking for gold and uh producing a kind of Catholicism by the sword and, and missionizing people. And of course, there's a complex history of the different kinds of, you know, uh, uh, missionizing strategies that uh, these conquistadors had with, along with the Jesuits and others, Jesuits being a little bit more humane in their approach and trying to build relationship and, and, and maintain indigenous pathways in their uh, understanding of Christianity. Uh, not all, but many. And uh, it's a complex narrative, uh, but, you also have the enslavement and forced labor of indigenous people in missions up across the West Coast uh, from California, where I'm at. And then on the, the, you know, the North American, more North American side, right, you've got 
the Puritans and Jamestown. And, you know, uh, you think about what, why do people come to America and the story that we tell ourselves, right? It's always selective, right? We, we talk about all this, this, you know, pure Christian mission to come to America. And we identify with the Puritans, right? And a kind of national story that uh, a number of people tell about the founding of America. But Jamestown is just as old, if not older, than the the Puritans and Pilgrims coming along. And, you know, in some ways, that very much represents the American story of coming and not building right relationships with the indigenous people at, in, a, in a productive way and coming expressly for gold, right? And in many ways, I mean, we could critique this movie uh, Pocahontas, right? But that opening song that slaps about mine, 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 you know, that Radcliffe sings, I, yeah. I show this to my class on religion, American politics. And this is like, this captures a lot of that spirit, right? The, this doctrine of discovery spirit that, uh, that any land that's inhabited by indigenous people, because they are not Christians, can just be possessed and can be taken and extracted from and utilized for the sake of benefiting some at the expense of others. And, you know, as we think about, as the we, I mean, a, a number of indigenous people thinking about what does it look like to revitalize or decolonize our worldviews, right? Uh, it's to move away from this idea of land as property, to move away from this idea that space territory is here for the extraction of minerals for wealth to better ourselves. And that also comes with this assumption that humans are intrinsically better than or superior to all other creatures. So an indigenous worldview, it is suffuse with non-human persons. There are all kinds of other persons out there that may not be humans, but it is our responsibility as humans to live in right relationship with all of creation, with everything that abounds. And this comes across in a number of indigenous stories that uh, we tell that, uh, uh, that, that, that you could compare across the region. And again, I use we with, with scarecrows, right? Because there's no singular indigenous we. There are a lot of things that we could talk about that a lot of indigenous communities share uh, across regions. But indigenous peoples are just as particular uh, and different as the landscape around them. And I, we can talk about that. But you know, that, that, you know, the land shapes the stories, right? If you are relying upon salmon, salmon are going to be really important in the stories you tell about your relationship to the world versus those uh, that live in swamps or, or forests like the Chata originally did. So all that to say, though, in a number of these creation stories, it's animals that, that are created first, and humans are oftentimes the pitiful ones. Animals take pity on the humans that are dumb and can't survive uh, apart from them. And there are a number of stories where animals feeling so much pity for humans, they counsel together and they say, you know what, we should allow some of these humans to hunt us and to uh, eat of us so that they could survive. Um, there is a related to this, right? There is this Cherokee story where uh, the animals are so angry with the humans for overhunting and overkilling them 
that the the bears basically uh, in council with the earthworm and others come up with this idea that they should get humans sick and they invent sickness this way. And so the humans are dying because they can't survive the new kinds of illnesses that are coming from. And then the plants take pity on these humans and the plants provide a council together and, and they, they bring the animals together and say, look, can we work in a, a new way, a new system here where we can have more harmony rather than just see these pitiful humans die out from existence. They have a place here too. And so the fa- the plants show themselves to uh, Cherokee medicine and in dreams and visions and show them here, this is how you can make use of us to heal the sicknesses that you have. But remember, as you use us, you have to show us respect and you have to live in harmony with everything around you. And so, uh, you know, a core principle that this all ties into is this notion of harmony and living in right relationship with all these non-human persons that you need to maintain balance with. Uh, so I, I realize I've taken a number of different trails in these stories, because as I'm telling one story leads to another story, which all <laughs> comes around to other virtues that I want to point out to you. But in, but in some ways, right, this is this nonlinear conversation, right, is also a virtue of indigenous culture and storytelling, right? That, uh, that, that we see things in circles. We see things as branching out from one another and, and not just something that's so organized and, and static and stoic going through this. Uh, gosh, I, 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 I have had a lot to learn from my, uh, my elders in this community, but it, is, it has been so rich. So, uh, so your audience doesn't get lost, right? We, we've talked about the relationality of things. We've talked about the importance of harmony and balance. And we could talk about, again, if you want to dove, take a rabbit trail from there, right? Uh, uh, differences of harmony between Western notions of sin and evil uh, and how you think about the world and the stories you tell about the world. Um, and all of this came from talking about this the pre-colonial contact and, uh, uh, you know, notions that indigenous people had before conquest, right, of, of, of seeing land as property, not as, as person, uh, or, or thing that, that is not even thing, but yeah, yeah, as, as person. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to pause there uh, because I want to hear what stories you want me to tell tell more about. No, that's such a great that's such a, a great way to to kick it off. I think um, I, I think one important thing to note is that uh, um, from a historical view, uh, you know, I think more recent historians have have come to the conclusion that, hey, you know, it wasn't just this sparsely populated country of, of, you know, tribes here and there, but rather millions upon millions of Native peoples who were living in kind of sort of a network of interconnected communities uh, across the country. And much in the same way that we have states and our own separate sort of traditions in these pockets of the country, that was true for the Native peoples as well. And so, of course... With that, you know, you would expect, as you said, uh, to see slightly varying uh, traditions when it comes to their spirituality. Um, but one of the things I think was really neat that, that you got into, and this is one of the, I think, important things to note, um, is just the the nature of their relationship with the world r- around them. Um, it seems to be one that is uh, more heavily focused on the kind of interconnectedness of the universe and and just this respect and reverence for, for nature and, um, 
you know, as you said, the animals and, and um, plants and, and things in a way that sort of is lost within sort of the traditional uh, Christian community. Because, I mean, obviously now, you know, we're, we're a, a lot of, you know, big issues are like climate change and uh, taking better care of the planet and not overhunting and overfishing populations. And But that seems to be something that the Native American people were, were very akinly uh, in tune with. Yes. And I will say that it's not that even these principles come easy for any indigenous person, right? We, we just like love doesn't come easy for Christians. Like we, we, we say this is really important and value. This is part of our community, but it takes work and it takes training. Uh, uh, and then passing down and seeing it modeled. The, you know, one thing that oftentimes gets projected upon indigenous people, right, is, well, they're all just these, uh, they're, they're worshiping nature, right? They're worshiping the sun, they're worshiping trees, and that's really not quite it. In some ways, they, they share indigenous respect for nature, respect for the world, shares some uh, uh, resonances with Catholic perspectives of of venerating and recognizing the saints as available members, as, as persons, right, who are available, who are present, who are distinct from uh, uh, a, a different kind of higher power, right? The world is suffused with all these kinds of beings that we are in relationship with. And uh, I don't know where I saw this, but there was a TV show that, that mentioned that what is love but paying attention? Mm. And... It is part of an indigenous worldview that the way in which we love and are in right relationship with the things around us is to pay attention to it, to pay attention to the stream, to the animals, to our lawns, to the forest, right? And that in this paying attention, we are, we are showing love and we are showing gratitude to the world around us. And it's, it's such a richer way to walk around, to see the world as something to be loved to something that 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 is loving us that, that we are in relationship with and we we see this in indigenous practices of harvesting when you take and gather uh medicinal leaves from plants right you just don't take it and and, and just walk away without any kind of consideration or intention. And so a number of indigenous people, right, as they gather sacred herbs or even gather and extract from plants, right, there's this attention of, well, I'm not going to take all of this because this plant still needs these leaves to live. I'm also not going to over har- harvest without some kind of gift and I'm going to provide some tobacco, right? Uh, and I'm going to bury that in there as a sign of respect and as an acknowledgement. And we don't need to get into the entire ontology of what effect happens, but I will say from a personal effect, right? From a, per, a, per, a personal stance that you just, it, it, it forms this just level of appreciation and, and whatever you appreciate, just whatever you say thank you to, there's just this overwhelming good feeling that, that happens in us as humans, as we show gratitude and respect. And, and indigenous people don't have the monopoly on the power of gratitude and appreciation, Right, but there is something magical in any of these moments, and so I think in indigenous life ways and practices are tuned to that, and have tried to expand that broadly um, 
to to the to the world we interact with every day. And you know, to audiences out there, I you know, I, I pose this challenge of what is would it be like in your life as you're gardening to thank the tree uh, for the shades providing you and to uh, uh, thank the the strawberries that you're harvesting uh, from your small gathering. You know, what, someone who puts this in such beautiful language and it probably is one of the best books I've read um, this past decade is uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And she does have this wonderful chapter of, of thanking the strawberries and thanking her garden and her uh, in, in thinking about, you know, does my garden love me? I, it's it, it's just beautiful. And, and so you can love other things without falling into quote unquote idolatry. Right. And I think there's a lot of hand wringing in there. Uh, right. The same way I don't say like, or have any kind of anxiety when I tell my wife or my daughters that I love them and I appreciate them. I'm like, Oh, well, you know, I've diminished the honor and glory of the creator by telling my family that I love them, right? Or other people I love them. There's just, there's more things to love. There's more persons to love out there that, that, that enriches one's life and experience of the world. Yeah. And it just kind of, it, it kind of reflects on this idea that we see God's divine image everywhere around us, you know, and God being God's, God's, um, yeah, God's divine image or, or, or the love of God, you know, manifesting in, in all things around us. And, yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to to, to look at things. Um, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting, we did a um, we did a series years ago. Gosh, it feels like last year, but it was probably like six years ago now. <laughs> but we did a really cool series uh, where we kind of highlighted a few different religions. And um, one of the things we've really tried to press upon in our podcast is just this idea that um, there's beauty to be found in other traditions beyond Christianity and, and educating ourselves is, is a good thing, you know, and, and our understanding our brothers and sisters a little bit more, you know, who practice other faith traditions. And one of the things that was really eye opening for me, and I'll admit my ignorance in this is I read this really great book by uh, Stephen Prothero, uh, who's going to come out later in this series, who wrote a book called God is not one mm-hmm. and kind of bucking against this notion that all religions ultimately have the same end goal. And I thought, I've never thought about that before, <laughs> you know? And so, like, you know, it, within Christianity, we know salvation is a big piece of it, you know, and and uh, getting into heaven and battling against sin and all this stuff. Um, but that's not necessarily the, the main focal point for other world religions. So, uh, and you kind of re- mentioned this at the top a little bit, like, so what would you say, uh, broadly speaking, is kind of the outlook on or the main, I guess, the main main end goal for Native American spirituality and ultimately their view on sin and evil, because sin and evil really is like a major focal point for Christians, right? We worry about this all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, tell Stephen I say hi. I actually have in hand his book right now, his textbook called Religion Matters, and I'm about to teach it next week to my undergraduates in my world religion class. So, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to dig into it. I've even had a student uh, read it and say, this is the best textbook I've read on this. So I'm, I'm excited to yeah. introduce it for the first time. Oh, that's great. So, so 
I was just flipping through his chapter on this, and it's funny because he, in, instead of teaching global indigenous traditions and religions from you know bird's eye view, he sits with the Navajo tribe or the Diné and thinks precisely through this problem of how they work it out, right? And and the way in which Navajo work this out I and mean, see the problem, I would say, can be expanded, can be seen in a lot of indigenous communities, right? And the problem is that the things are out of balance, that things are not in right relationship. Uh, and in some ways, right, eventually, I don't want to say that this is comparable to evil, um, because in the Western notions of evil, right, it, especially that, that, that thinks of evil as this um, non-material that, that's, that's harbored within some irredeemable bad being like the devil, that it's at war with God, right? It, the notion of evil is... Uh, framed by this larger apocalyptic cosmological story of a dualism of good versus evil, where you have these poles that are just going to complete opposite and one is going to completely win out of the other. Uh, and we find ourselves in this cosmological battle uh, of apocalyptic proportions. In indigenous traditions, right, um, it's not that like there are not bad things, but there, there's a stronger emphasis that there are not irredeemably bad things. There are not inherently bad things. That everything has a power. Everything has uh, an agenda that has to be respected and that you can live in right relationship with. And so things get out of hand when respect isn't given. When things are taken and there's not this reciprocity of things given back. In some way, it really lines up with the family experiences we have, right? Like, my daughter is not irredeemably good or bad. And things are in flow with us when she's properly respecting me when I tell her it's time to go to bed. And when I am also providing food for her, right? There, the, the, we, the, there's a harmony at household that... I could tell multiple stories about that reflects, well, this is life at is this is what life looks like at its best, and it's good, right? It's a really compelling image. And this also invites notions of beauty and of an art to navigating these relationships in a good way that is not always perfect and doesn't have to be perfect, but there are pathways and rituals and ceremonies in place by which then we can restore balance. And there's oftentimes, and we think about this in our own lives, right? Where being a parent, there's a work-life balance. And to make money and to, to be competitive, you are gonna focus on your job. Or right now I have two jobs, one at Cornell College and Nate's, right? And that's gonna take me away from my obligations with my daughters. And uh, uh, that can exist out of balance for a while, but if that exists out of balance and disharmony for too much, I'm going to uh, curse my daughters for years on the therapy couch for an absentee <laughs> dad, right? Yeah. And uh, that is going to have long-lasting ramifications. And so tomorrow we're going to take them to a water park, right? We're going to do these quote-unquote ceremonies, right, to attend to them, to love to them, right, and uh, to restore that balance. And so you take this family analogy, and I think we apply this to an indigenous mindset to you know, well, there are other persons we have to think about. We have to think about the earth. We have to think about um, the deer. We have to think about the animals that we harvest, the bison, 
right? We just can't over harvest the bison, but there, there, we we live in relationship to the bison that provide us hides, that make our houses, that we use every part of the bison, right? Because we have taken a life, and to disrespect that life would be to uh, casually take one part of the bison and throw it away, right? Uh, but but because this life is a dignified life, is a life that has meaning and had meaning, um, we are going to do right by the this death that that that, that has just resulted. So uh, you know the problem again is living out of balance in the multiple ways and in the multiple possible relationships that one can live out of balance with. And, uh, and when oneself is not in balance, it's not this apocalyptic do or die. Sometimes, you know, stakes can be high, but that there are pathways to restoring balance. And that is the place of indigenous ceremonies, right? Whether it is uh, in Lakota tradition and a lot of Plains traditions, you have these sweat lodges or you have ceremonies that honor the salmon or the bison that become opportunities to, to think and be grateful for the bison and for the salmon. Or if they are ceremonies around uh, green corn festivals and, and other plant and vegetations, right, to, to be thankful to the earth, to, uh, to, to recognize our appreciation for the land, right, that, that, that it's restoring our relationship to a number of 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 beings and persons that flood and uh, uh, suffuse the world around us. I, I love that. I, I just think there's so many things to learn from, um, from the, the native American traditions, because I think, uh, I think we could do a better job of probably, um, I don't know, looking, looking at that disharmony or that, un, that, unbalanced relationship that we have with, uh, with the earth, with animals, uh, with, with all those sorts of things. And then also there's, there's power in, in ritual, as you said, you know, we, we have our own for sure, but I think over time you, you kind of see a loss of, of the power of ritual. And, um, I remember reading some Joseph Campbell, uh, back in the day and, and, and Campbell even talking about the notion that even as far back as like the seventies and eighties, that ritual is kind of a lost, thing but it is okay if you don't want to follow the old rituals but then you need to create new ones in in, in their place so i i like this idea of um you know being intentional and you know and i mean, coming from an evangelical protestant tradition right like i was raised to be very suspicious of rituals right it's about <laughs> relationship with jesus and if you're feeling like your life is in disorder, right? It's just, you just have to have faith more. You have to pray more or it, it, it just it didn't create room for a kind of sense of answering that feeling. I think a lot of humans have that, that life is in disorder, that life, that, that life is out of balance. And how do I restore that balance or how do I feel clean? Right. I mean, baptism wasn't this kind of one and done thing in a lot of religious traditions, even in Christianity. Right. Uh, uh, in the the Qumran communities or uh, communities that are associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Like there were these washings that would happen all the time because there was this innate feeling that you have to be clean as you are going to worship Jesus or not worship Jesus, I'm sorry, but worship the God of Israel or to perform these things. And it makes sense in certain societies. Uh, I, we, I see this in a, a 
well, an early story uh, told among the Muscogee Creek people of, of how their people arrived into the East Coast, right? It's because they were following the sun, which they interpreted to be the cleanest thing out there. And they wanted to be clean too. And as they followed the sun to the ocean, and they saw it come up from the ocean, from the water, right? This inspired them to think of their own water rituals that provide the sense of, 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 of cleaning, of restoring, right? And, uh, and they just own it and they're intentional about it, right? And I think there's a ways in which even evangelicals and, and non-religious people participate daily in their life in these kinds of cleansing rituals, but they wouldn't identify or tend to it, right? Uh, you know, you think about my wife and I are like this way, like having a clean home, like if, I, if I'm stressed about a project or a paper I have to write, like I will make sure my office is in order. I will make uh, sure the tape, you know, the chairs are in line, right? That there, there is some order in my house. So metaphysically, right, that I feel like, okay, I am in a good or lucky place that my world is in order that I can tend to this. Or whether we feel like, man, I've done something wrong. I need to like take a shower, right? Uh, and, and this even is a prime to our humans, right? Daniel Kahneman talks about social science experiments in thinking fast and slow, that if you prime someone and talk about like, uh, uh, you, you talk about moral evil or something like that, and then you give them this fill in the word, right? And the word is S-O-blank-P, right? People will just be like associated. Their mind just jumps. We are associative machines and we think with, about soap. And this is across traditions, right? That, that there's this sense of that we think about some picture. We need to do something to clean ourselves when we have done something wrong, right? And what are the ceremonies in our life, whether we identify them as ceremonies or, or rituals, right? What do we do in our lives to make ourselves feel clean? And indigenous people have been innovators and geniuses. I mean, there's wisdom in this, right? That, again, we, they have ceremonies in place. And this, again, will just differentiate between a Western individualist view and a communityist view. Uh, and this is a term I pull from my friend Tink Tinker, who has done a lot of work in writing on indigenous worldviews and perspectives as opposed to a Euro-American perspective, right? But a communityist view that that's not just up to you to, to determine that you're clean, right? But that this is identified, done alongside of others and seen and recognized by others, and again, there's some wisdom in this. And even as a scholar, right, participating in Western society, right, uh, I need community to recognize that, like, what I've written is of value, right? And there's many ways in which, you know, I could write a book or write an article. And my wife says, oh, that's great, right? My mom says, oh, that's wonderful. It's like, well, your opinion doesn't matter. It matter <laughs> What I need is a review from someone I've never met and have no relationship with to say, oh, that's a good book. And then I'll feel like whole, right? But, but even that <laughs> touches on this idea that, uh, you know, like if a tree falls in the wood and knows it's here, is it, did the tree fall? But in the same way, like, if you're cleaner, if you've gone through some ritual thing, it's not validated, right? By a community, or it's not seen and, and it's not uh, attended to, right? Attention given by a community, loved by a community. What what substance and meaning does that really have? These walls and I found a business where the company line was the only way. Church on Saturday.
certainty that fears everything against it Where the refugee suffers and the white man has it made him. I won't do it anymore It's taking me Try to help the world to recover I sat myself in your pews every single week And I gave you my money So that you would tell me I think 
there's a way for us to love 